T.S. Eliot begins his poem, The Wasteland, with the words, April is the cruelest month. Why would April be the cruelest month? Well, because as people in the poem trudge to their slavish work in London, their backs are quite literally turned away from Canterbury, walking away from the joy, the fellowship, and the freedom of the pilgrimage. This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. Geoffrey Chaucer begins the Canterbury Tales, describing the beauty of April and the countryside coming back to life. It is the time, he tells us, than longen folk goon on pilgrimages. And specially, he adds, from every shire's end of England to Canterbury they wend. A small company of pilgrims forms, including a knight, a miller, an estate manager, a cook, a friar, the wife of Bath, and some others. And as they go along, each introduces him or herself and tells a tale. Like the Samaritan woman Jesus met in John's Gospel, chapter 4, the wife of Bath has had five husbands, not to mention other compania in Utha. She manufactures textiles, and between that wealth and the wealth inherited from her three first husbands, who were good and rich and old, the wife of Bath is a wealthy woman who has been on pilgrimage as far as Jerusalem. She's also rather fond of sex. Professor Adam Cooper has been reading the Canterbury Tales with Wyoming Catholic College juniors, and I asked him to tell us about the tales, and then specifically about the wife of Bath. Uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is one of the great comic contributions uh, of the Middle Ages. We think of Dante as giving us the divine comedy. Um, but that word doesn't mean what we think it means. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Um, a uh, work always of high seriousness um, that looks at the whole range of human life from the point of view of the possible endings, heaven, hell, purgatory. Um, and his whole universe is sort of arranged vertically from the bottom of deep down in the darkness in the center of earth where Satan is exiled all the way up through the spheres to the light and presence of God himself at the top of things. And I think there's a real way in which Chaucer being also coming from this Christian world of the Middle Ages, a world that's imbued in really even in its most humble physical characteristics with the Christian spirit, Chaucer gives us the other side of the comedy. The, you could say he's the author of the, the human comedy and that if, uh, if Dante looks at the pilgrimage of life from the point of view of the end, Chaucer gives us people who are always on the way. They're going, hard to know where they're ultimately going. They might be going in more than one direction at once. Um, and uh, nevertheless, there's a lot to be interested in, to know about them, to say about them, even from the point of view of this uh, on the way position. And of course, if Dante gives us a vertically arranged cosmos, sorted out, 
Chaucer gives us a, a richly mixing horizontal cosmos in which on this pilgrimage to Canterbury, which of course is a great medieval uh, practice to make, uh, as he says in the prologue, when, when spring comes and the birds start singing and uh, the flowers start blooming, then people like to go on pilgrimage. Uh, it's, a, it's just part of life, uh, but it's a great medieval practice that somehow is trying to express the relationship our lives ought to have to eternal and final things. And But on the pilgrimage, you kind of set aside your normal social role and your normal social uh, uh, connections, a knight and a miller and a, a almost professional wife, uh, a, <laughs> a partner who's selling indulgences caught from Rome and a good parish parson who is just a wise father confessor. They're all kind of mixing together in a, in a time, pilgrimage time, taken out of ordinary time to reflect on your life and where it might be going to tell a story to each other. And people come for different reasons, but there's some, some question of where we're all going, hanging over the whole thing. Yeah. And that they're just there as a random collection. They didn't decide to go to, to Canterbury together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they fall into each other's company by by aventura, by chance, as as Chaucer says, and uh, they decide to spend the journey to Canterbury and back, telling stories to each other, and whoever can tell the story that has the most solace and most sentence, the most pleasure, enjoyment, bliss and the most wisdom, moral truth, instruction will be awarded a dinner at the inn on the way home, um, it, uh, according to how the whole company votes. All right, well, tell us about the professional wife, the wife of Bath, beginning with her defense of having five husbands, which is amusing all by itself. That's right. Uh, yeah, like, the, like St. John's woman at the well, she's had... She's had five husbands and she opened and, and a whole lot of other liaisons. It's, uh, it's, it seems likely in the general prologue where Chaucer is introducing all the pilgrims, the narrator implies that he thinks she has in her younger days been, been around quite a bit. Um, and she is willing to play into that impression that she makes as well uh, so seems likely yeah she um one of the things that's interesting about her is that she as you say her delightful defense of marriage and remarriage um she's full of biblical uh authorities she can cite the classical sources of wisdom boethius dante seneca ptolemy she cites more than once <laughs> told me it's right. random <laughs> yes yeah. yeah we'll have to ask her the uh the science side of her faculty to comment on that <laughs> but she begins by saying even though she can cite all these authorities so ably she begins to say by saying experience though known auctorite were in the world gives me grounds on which to speak of the woe that is in mariage the woe that is in marriage um, so, and she has a quite the experience of of marriage, having been 
when she was 12 years old, married first, um, and having had five husbands, um, the last of which she married when she was 40. She has a lot of more experience than almost uh, anyone I've met uh, to, to speak about, not only perhaps the woe that is in marriage, but also maybe some of the solace that is to be found there. Well, what does this say about the medieval notion of marriage, or does it say anything about the medieval notion of marriage? Huh? Well, uh, so she begins, of course, with this spirited defense of getting married and getting remarried. And it's clear that she is responding to preachments that are out there um, about the, not only the superiority of virginity, celibacy as a way of life, but even the notion that it's not a matter of choosing the highest good, but actually it's the only truly good, good life. And uh, certainly is a tradition stre stretching back to uh, the fathers and very much alive and well in the Middle Ages of heaping aspersions and scorn on the married state as a truly fulfilling, truly, even truly Christian pass. So I think you can sort of see in, in the Wife of Bass's prologue, especially though also in her tale, a she's taking her place in a lively debate about the relationship between natural and human goods um, and spiritual, ultimate divine goods. And if there was ever a period of time in which those things were debated rigorously, richly, and seriously, and in her case, with a great deal of spirit, wit, and humor, it was, it was the Middle Ages. Isn't, uh, in, the, in the prologue, doesn't it say that uh, she's been on all kinds of pilgrimages as well? Mm -hmm. So it, it's not that she's married and not, in a sense, uh, a, holy, a holy woman. Yeah, it said, here it is. She had passed many a strange stream at Rome, Bologna, Galicia, at St. Jane, uh, presumably Compostela, at Cologne. And she'd been to Jerusalem. One of her husbands died after she returned from Jerusalem. This is an interesting lady. Now she said she has, she's had three good husbands. Or three husbands who were good, rich, and, and old. old. <laughs> yes. And then two bad ones. Uh, husband number four was her purgatory on earth, she tells us. Uh -huh. And then there's this number five, who she married for love, uh -huh. and who has this book that he reads from every night about evil wives uh, until she finally tears it up and eventually burns it, and then he submits to her. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, so... Yes, five, her five husbands and it. Uh, the first three are, are all sort of the same story in a way. The, as you say, the, the first three were good, rich, and old. Um, and you have to think again, she was 12 years, 12 years old. Probably whoever was her guardian told her she needed to have some money and she had some something to offer a rich old man that uh, she could begin to make a life out of. Um, and she says her first three husbands were good because uh, she had them in hand. 
She could manipulate them on every level. She has a wonderful, hilarious, horrifying to anyone who's <laughs> yes. looking at the prospect of getting married, a description of how she can very quickly and then constantly put her husband in the wrong and make him feel like he's offended her in some way so that he'll give her nice gifts from the fair, he'll let her go out and have fun with her friends in the streets and so forth. So she's, she'll always, she'll say, I know you're looking at our maid or I know you're looking at the pretty neighbor girl and so forth and, uh, and then, uh, and nevertheless, you're locking me up like a jealous old man and so forth. Therefore, by, by the time she's done, this, these poor, good, rich old men are ready to buy her whatever she wants and let her live the kind of life she wants to. So she used uh, what she had to uh, get the best, as she puts it, out of these men. And by the time she's looking for a fourth husband, she has we can assume three estates, um, the, the uh, inheritance from three wealthy men. Um, her fourth husband, we, we, she implies she was still young when she married him. She says she could, she could sing, she could dance, and she remembers how she was at that time fondly. But by the time he died, she implies she was old. And it, it, it looks as if this fourth husband was not rich and old, but... Uh, and compliant. But, and certainly not compliant, as it happened, but someone she, with whom she actually hoped to, to live something approaching a good, normal life. It turns out that he uh, was never really interested in her as a person uh, and uh, had a mistress, a pa paramour, she says, and this tore her up. And she says she mad for him of the same wood a cross. She made a cross for him of the same wood, which sounds like she was uh, unfaithful sleeping around with other men, but she immediately tells us, no, I made him think I was, and I knew exactly how to torment him the way no one on earth ever did. But by the time he died, she had learned both by giving woe to her first three husbands and by the mist her mistreatment by this fourth husband, the woe that is in mariage. And her fifth husband is a clerk from uh, Oxenford. She's the only one, he's the only one, she tells us his name, Jeanquin, the clerk. Uh, and he, she now is old and maybe seems to have lost her chance at a happy life at all, given that she grew old in this fourth, fourth marriage. Uh, and he is young. She is old and rich and he is young and in a real sense, uh, it seems that now the tables have turned and this young man will, with his fresh charms, will marry her and get her interested in him. And then she won't last, one can imagine, very long. And uh, in the meantime, he can put up with her or make her life miserable as, as he wishes. Because when he comes home, 
comes home in the evening and puts his feet by the fire. There's nothing he loves more than to read from her the book of wicked wives, uh, beginning with Eve, and takes us through Delilah and Clytemnestra and all the all the stories that, if you've uh, studied your Bible and the classics well, ought to confirm you in the opinion that if there's one thing you shouldn't do, it is to get married because a woman is a creature who will torment you, ruin your life. Well, then she tears up his book. She, he boxes her ears so she's partly deaf. Yeah. But then he surrenders completely, which seemed odd. Yeah, what, what is... What is what is Chaucer showing us here with this strange reversal where this absurd woman character who uh, is, is, is very open about how awful she's been to a lot of people in her life. And uh, what, what, are, what should we make about the fact that she finally gets, gets the better even of this young Jeanquin, the, the smart clerk, what does, what, in what sense does she get the better of him? In her defense of marriage at the beginning of her prologue, as I said, she cites a lot of authorities. And among them, she, she cites the, the great texts, which are the source texts for her thinking about, about marriage in the Bible, including Genesis 1, where... She says, God bought us, be fruitful and multiply. And this is a, this is a text that gives, fills, fills my heart with bliss. And then, and then she says, and St. Paul, he bad husbands love their wives. Uh, and that's important. <laughs> you can, I think you can see in the arc of her life a girl who first found herself in marriage as a survival mechanism in the world and used marriage to torment her husbands and get what she wanted and needed from them. Then in her fourth marriage, learned the bitterness of having a spouse who, who does not love you. And she made his life on earth a purgatory and he made her life on earth a bitterness. It seems like Chaucer is asking us to look at this fifth marriage and say, you can start living life for all the wrong reasons and you can get married for all the wrong reasons. Nevertheless, there is something in the structure of marriage that can be a school of love and a school of virtue. And maybe after making mistakes, big mistakes four times in a row, you could, that grace that is in the sacrament could begin to be operative. Because what happens is she marries this boy who she hopes to love and he does nothing but torment her precisely in the way that she tormented her first husbands. But instead of just giving him whatever he wants, the way her husbands did for her, she's sitting there listening to him explain how horrible women are always. 
She doesn't just go in the other room and say, fine, do what you want. She takes it in her heart and it tears her up. Uh, she says, who would wane or who would suppose the woe that in me heritage was and pain? It enters her heart as a pain and therefore she attacks the book. She runs at him and tears three pages out of his book of wicked wives, a, a thing for which he strikes her in the ear and she remains deaf in one of her ears to this day and she, so that she's lying on the floor as if she was dead. And when he saw how still that Eli, he was aghast and Woldhunt fled his why. He thinks maybe he's killed her and the best thing he should do in this situation is, is run away. And, but when she speaks, she says, Oh, hast to slime me, false a thief, and for me longed, thus hast to mordred me, ere ye be dead, yet will ye kiss her they. She said, she's not dead, and he can be relieved in that, but what she says to him is, have you murdered me for my property? If so, just at least give me a kiss. In other words, I think, if you to have married me for my property, never mind that that's what I did with my other husbands, is would be to is to murder me as a as a person, and all all I want is a genuine sign of love. Just kiss me, and he hearing this word that is clearly from, from her heart, near he came and nailed fire down and said, dear sister Alison. And I think that, that word sister, as if what we're talking about here is in the realm of what, what Christians call each other, brother, sister, um, shows that this is really to be taken seriously. Dear sister Alison, as help me God, he shall thee never smite, that ye have done, it is your own fault, but forgive it me. <laughs> uh, and uh, as soon as uh, then she hits him. <laughs> uh, but after a, a, a lot more back and forth, they come to an accord and he gives into her hand the governance of his house, her, of the house and land, which when they first married, she entrusted to him and of his tongue. So he doesn't spend all his time berating her for being a woman and of his hand, his hand also. So, uh, she does, he doesn't, he's not going to hit her anymore. And the biggest thing of all, he gives her the book and allows her to burn it. <laughs> Which, if, you, uh, if you're a scholar, you know that this is a true sacrifice, a true token of love, to, especially in the Middle Ages, where a book is worth an inheritance. And he says, Min ona trua weef, do as thee lust, the term of all thee leaf. Keep zine honor, your honor, and eke mine estate. And after that day, we never had debate. God help me so, I was to him as kind 
as any wife from Denmark to India, and also true, and so he was to me. So when they first get married, she entrusts him with him with everything she owns. And then at this moment when he realizes that he in his marriage to her, he without loving her, without even trying to pretend to love her, he was doing the equivalent of murdering her. He actually found, she spoke to him out of the depths of his soul and he found that in her which he could love. Um, and then he submitted everything that he had submitted to her, to, that she had submitted to him back to her. You know, the, he begins with Eve. Eve in the uh, book of Wicked Wives, Eve caused human, man caused mankind all its troubles from, from the garden to this day. But the words of the curse are uh, that marriage is going to be a curse for Eve because her desire will be for her husband and he will lord it over her. And that is how initially the wife of Bath experiences her fifth marriage. Her desire is for this young man and all he can do is lord it over her. This is wonderful to sort of begin with marriage in its fallen dynamics and its cursed state and then show how maybe it's not just a curse. Maybe within the fallen state of things, there is a redemptive path built in to marriage that it could be a blessing. And it seems like at the end, when he loves her and sort of submits to her, it's very different from the way in which her older men submitted to her. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually, I think, in its weird, comic, earthy, Chaucerian way, an example of what St. Paul means when he says to husbands and wives, be submissive to each other in the Lord. Well, as you can tell, Professor Cooper and I simply covered the prologue to the Wife of Bath's tale and didn't get to the tale itself. Let me encourage you to read that on your own. Perhaps it will be an introduction to Chaucerian English and thus to the treasure that is the Canterbury Tales. Don't get frustrated by trying to read it. If you read it and work at it, it's amazing how clear it becomes after, I would say, 10 pages. I'll tell you, though, that the tale very much reflects the wife of Bath's life and her marriages. And I'll also tell you that she ends the tale with these words, updated for simplicity's sake. And may Jesus Christ send us husbands, meek, young, and lusty, and grace to outlive them that we wed. And I pray Jesus also to shorten their days that will not be ruled by their wives. The old, angry misers, may God send them a true pestilence soon. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.